time to ditch all that outdated training that just doesn't work very well. Stay with us for a better understanding of how people learn best. I'm Nigel Cassidy and this is the CIPD Podcast. Would you believe that less than half of all the learning and development people surveyed by the CIPD said that they were using any new learning concepts in their training? No wonder workplace learning is seen by some as a bore and a chore. But of course, it's the businesses that are really suffering because learning is the mechanism to close their skills gaps. So here's some inspiration for redesigning your programmes with a nod to a few learning theories and behavioural science concepts that hopefully even I can understand. Carl Chrysostomo is a digital learning consultant and learning science vlogger. His consultancy, Carl Learns, helps L&D teams, brands and others to harness the power of learning science. Hello, Carl. Hi, Nigel. And Michelle Parry-Slater is the CIPD's commercial learning content manager, supporting the shift from traditional courses to a better mix of digital, social and face-to-face learning. Hello. Hi. So, Michelle, I suppose L&Ds all had to be delivered online because of COVID. Now, classroom learning is creeping back into the mix. That's good, isn't it? It is good as long as we learn what we've um, experienced over the last 18 months or so. And don't forget that. I mean, we, we kind of had this thing where we had to suddenly in March 2020 move to online. And a lot of people just lifted and shifted the face to face into an online space. And, and quite frankly, it didn't work. <laughs> so um, we need to not do that same thing when we when we head back into face to face. And for me, it's really around understanding how best we can blend learning um, across the best possible outcomes um, for the learners. And that's why we need to know some of the learning theory that we're going to be talking about today, really. And your big bugberry school style teaching. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, many of us, when we um, start in the profession, uh, you know, I did back in the day training. We stick with what we know. Uh, We've had classroom and we forget actually. Classroom came about because that was all we had. We had one resource, one book, one expert at the front of the class. Well, that's just not the case anymore at all. Um, We've got a lot of information out on the internet freely available. So we've got a question, how do we get learning into people in the flow of work so that they can carry on with what they're doing and get to access to information when they need it? Okay, Carl, can we start with a bit of learning science from you? A lot of L&D people will have been taught a few important learning theories. Which are those which are most likely to crop up, should we know about? Yeah, I, I think the best place really to start is, is to have a little bit of a history lesson. You know, learning theories have been around a very long time. Even the ancient Greeks philosophized about how our brains work. And um, though if you really want to put a stake in the ground and say, this is where proper learning theory started out. And most importantly, when included scientific exploration, it started with Hermann Ebbinghaus and his studies on memory in the 1800s. And his forgetting curve theory states that memories weaken over time. So if you learn something new, but then make no attempt to relearn that information. Uh, So this is the skills decay when uh, somebody teaches me a new internet platform and then three weeks later, when I actually try and do it, I've forgotten. Exactly. Things just disappear after hours, days and weeks. And so what we need to do is we need to stop that forgetting. And Ebbinghaus's theory forms the basis of my favourite learning model, actually, and one of the most researched concepts in learning science, something called spaced practice. And as the name suggests, it's spacing out the practice of what you have learned 
over a period of time. And this has the effect of making your memories more resistant to forgetting. And so by using pace practice, we're reconstructing what we have learned and more importantly, reconstructing those neural pathways that led to that learning. So, Michelle, we've got these particularly famous learning theories and from that has developed a number of different learning styles and sort of typical ways in which people are taught. And you've already indicated that a lot of them, you're, you know, are not great as far as you're concerned. That is absolutely right. I mean, things like learning styles per se has been debunked many a time and quite rightly so. So it becomes very problematic for the average practitioner, the average learning and development person. How do I know what's real and what's not real? What's good science and what's not so good science? And um, how can I relate those to my work? And you're right, um, Nigel, there are many famous ones. You know, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and his flow theory, for example, Daniel Pink now with the motivational theories and, um, you know, human-centered design or learning-centered design. These are all sort of bandied around, but how do you actually get a handle on them and knowing which ones you should be following and which ones you shouldn't be following? I think a lot of theory is perhaps left a little bit to instructional designers who want to follow a more um, structured way of doing their work. So they're following Addy principles or they're following Robert Gangney principles. But as quickly as I've thrown all of those out, that feels very overwhelming for a practitioner. And so when you're coming into uh, L&D and you're being taught, you know, face-to-face training, as I was back in the day 20 years ago, you know, how do you access and get through to some of that? And, you know, I defer to my good colleague here, Carl, around how do we make that stuff work in our everyday work? Because it feels like we could kind of just ignore it a little bit is it that important our companies aren't asking for it our stakeholders aren't saying oh which learning theory are you using they're actually saying you know what's the bottom line do this learning program whatever so it is easy a little bit to steer clear but i don't think that we should well carl i'd go a bit further i would say that probably the vast majority of people in hr and possibly even in l and d may have lived most of their life in blissful ignorance of all these learning theories i mean what managers surely want they want better trained they want smarter staff they want better business outcomes so tell us why they need to even bother with all that stuff yeah i i think one of the big things say for business is um you know, this kind of thing is needed to help, say, for example, close the skill gap. You know, I'm a big fan of the CIPD learning skills at work reports. I read them for the last few years, and there's some great advice on how to close the skills gap. You know, it's a huge problem for businesses. Loss of productivity is an inhibitor to growth, and training is one of the main mechanisms used to close that skills gap. And so what we're doing is we're, we're talking about creating more personal learning experiences, we're weaving learning into the flow of work. We're buying more technology, more innovative learning experiences. And I also think learning science has a, play, a role to play in that. It'll make those learning experiences as effective as possible. And we also need to teach people how to be better learners. We need to teach them how to learn to learn, which is all part of learning science. So in fact, we're doing all these amazing things. We're ne- maybe neglecting a few of these areas. So you're giving people a Ferrari, with a Fiat 500 engine. Okay. You're very keen on learning about learning. What do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, so this is all about understanding how to learn by using learning theory and learning science. So what we do at the moment is we learn in quite a bad way. And I was, for me, learning to learn really came up when I started 
getting into this subject matter. And I, a good example of it is I did a course the other day and it at the beginning of the course, it's, they said that um, it would be great if you had a background in electrical engineering and complex math problem solving. It was on the fundamentals of neuroscience and that would have scared the life out of me. But I know I've got uh, a number of techniques, a number of tricks that's gonna get me through that course and I'm gonna enjoy the experience and I'm gonna learn a lot. So I think it's really, really important to understand how to learn, so learning to learn. So Michelle, tell us how do we start bridging the gap then between proven learning theory, things that uh, we really should be thinking about in the design of training and actually delivering better courses? I think the skills report that Carl mentioned is a good place to start, but also, um, you know, we've got fact sheets on the CIPD website about learning theory, which just, gives you some uh, direction of travel um, to start with. And like anything, start small. So perhaps it is just thinking about uh, Sweller's thoughts on cognitive load. Don't overload your learners, okay? So look at a programme that you already have and see perhaps where there is load, where we're trying to do too many things. So we're trying to expect somebody to read and remember and watch video and remember and so on and so forth. I think I go back also to what Carl said earlier about space learning practice. Um, spacing out our learning um, has been definitely proven when we think about the pandemic that when we're taking bite-sized virtual classrooms as opposed to previously a whole day in a classroom learning um, has, has become more impactful because people can fit that into their day job but they can also remember and practice what they've done in that learning session so my advice is is a little bit of a time uh, you know Vygotsky's scaffolding is absolutely key to this where we start small we build a bit more we build a bit more and we build a bit more. We can do that for ourselves as practitioners too. Yeah, I think a really nice example of that is I heard the other day from Catherine Demarius, and she's a senior director of Global Education Solutions at Johnson & Johnson. And she has been studying learning science as part of her Leadership in Learning in Organisations programme. And she's studied learning science and now she's applying what she has learned back in the workplace. So what she's did is she took an existing sales program, you know, one of these ones where sales training program where you turn up, they fill you full of knowledge and then you're shunted off. And, you know, I've worked in sales and I've been on plenty of those in my time. But she turned it on its head, you know. She applied uh, spacing, which we've talked about. She also applied a model called interleaving, where we weave different learning concepts throughout uh, the learning experience. So you don't uh, treat content as something that is linear. Uh, you mix it up, and that makes us work harder when we're trying to when we're trying to learn something. And so she used interleaving. She used um, spacing, and she used chunking as well. So she really chunked down her. Her content. And what she saw, firstly, was improvements in NPS scores. So that's what uh, they use to measure learner engagement. But also, they got knowledge improvements of 80% above target. They'd expected a 10% increase, and they smashed that target, 80% above target. So I think that's a great example of how learning science can be applied in the workplace. I can see here, Michelle, the problem that you can study the learning science, the theories, but it is making that leap into practice that is really quite difficult, isn't it? I mean, you said, for example, about blocking or whatever you do. I just wonder, is that one reason why we saw this figure earlier, 50% of training hasn't modernised, that people do find this redesigning very, very difficult? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And I think some of that is because 
we are not being tested or learnt on it. You know, nobody in the business is saying, what learning theory did you use? What, uh, you know, instructional design theory have you used in putting this together? They really care more about other stuff. So I think we have an onus on us for our own professional development, for our own professionalization of our industry almost, to bridge that gap. And how we can do some of that is questioning about what, what it is that we're counting. If we're presenting figures back to our organization that talk about number of learning hours or a number of people who went on a program, um, is that wholly relevant and is that wholly useful? Should we be saying, okay, well, you wanted the figure of number of learning hours, it's this number, but what is the impact measure? And if we measure better things, then actually we'll need to get more professional in what we're doing. So we'll need to think about, well, how do we motivate people to come along to our programs and to take part of our programs, to finish our programs? And that might help us to start looking at motivational theories, for example. But I think a lot of it is all tied up in a shift towards more modern thinking and away from that sort of classroom ritual of people coming together and learning together in, in large parts. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, you know, it's hard to keep on top of new learning theories, even existing ones, and then changing changes to existing theories, you know, because these things are incredibly organic. And I would say that learning science translators play an incredibly important role because, as uh, Michelle pointed out, you're not taught this stuff and it's not really easy to find. So a translator, that's a thing, is it? A learning science translator is someone who dives into the academic research and then repurposes it, repurposes what they find in a way that can be understood by, say, you and I. And they've really helped me, you know, I think it takes a certain skill set to decipher an academic paper. And more importantly, having the ability to compare one piece of research with a whole body of research in order to form an opinion and provide advice. So people like Will Talheimer, Clark Quinn, Paul Kirshner and Miriam Nealon, they're doing all that hard work to make research accessible for everyone. In fact, I'm currently reading Clark Quinn's book called Learning Science for Instructional Designers. And it's a great entry point for anyone who's um, interested in using learning science to inform their practice. And taking that on, Michelle, just give us some more practical ideas for how you run this process out and how you gather the evidence and then know what changes to make with your learners and for your learners. I think community is a good place. The L&D community is a really supportive and um, kind and generous community. So it doesn't sort of cast aspersions if you come along and say, you know, I don't know anything about this, teach me. Because by the inherent nature of the community, we're all in there for teaching, for helping each other. So things like Twitter chats, the LD Insight chat, chew over some of these sort of issues, and the CIPD communities as well, chew over some of these issues. And I think that learning from each other is one way that we can all support each other, understand, because Carl is absolutely right. You look at an academic paper at Ebbinghaus, as you talked about a long time ago in this podcast, that it's really complex. It was about remembering numbers. How can you go from remembering numbers to suddenly thinking, well, how does this apply to people forgetting what I taught them in a live um, online class? So there is a certain sense of trying to apply it. But coming together as an LNG community, we can work through how we can actually apply. So taking something like the forgetting curve and remembering that if we just spaced out, if we remind people regularly about these things, 
then they'll they'll go away. But for me also, some of it is knowing what's good science and what's bad science. So relying on the translators that Carl's mentioned to make sense of it for us can be really useful. And there are some really good people in this space that make it so that I can understand it. Now, I'm I'm not a, an academic. You know, I came into L&D and it was only an itch of my own that I got curious about you know, different types of learning theory. And I'm very aware that, for example, social learning works. So social learning, in my understanding, is, you know, people learning from people. Why is it, you know, when people go down to the smoker's hut, that they, they're always more engaged than those people that don't do that? And these are the sorts of things I'm like, well, how can I harness that? How can I work with that? How can I get them to have a conversation there, you know, around the coffee machine, around learning and, and what's good for their work. So I investigated and found, you know, Albert Bandura had done a load of research about social learning and what that means and how we can harness it. And um, so there's a there's a professional itch to scratch, but we do need some help. We do need some help with that, I would say. And I was just wondering, uh, Carl, what Michelle's talking about, I've seen referred to as micro-training. Is that the same thing? Because I was what I'm thinking about is that if you're kind of redesigning a big training programme, you might kind of neglect these social interactions, which might actually be really important in terms of uh, outcomes for the learners. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on the, the, the micro-training or the micro-learning piece uh, first. I, you know, often with these things, micro-learning and lots of other things that we do as part of our day-to-day practice is backed by science we just don't know. And micro-learning is a wonderful example of that. You know, there are a lot of definitions about micro-learning, but all of them agree on one thing, and that is learning done over a shorter period of time. And micro-learning essentially comes from chunking, which is a strategy we use to work within the constraints of our working memory. So our working memory is where information is stored. And unless we do something to firm up that knowledge, i.e. through something like space practice, it disappears out of our head. So chunking involves taking, organizing large blocks of content into smaller smaller logical segments. And cognitive science research shows that chunking can improve focus, reduce the potential for overload and make it easier to remember. So there's some good science behind this stuff. And so that microlearning is a great example of that. I get all that. But if I was being cynical, I might say you're doing that classic thing of taking something that works in practice and seeing if it works in theory. There's a sort of a slight element of self-justification about some L&D work that uh, you're kind of grafting the science on to prove that you're all terribly grown up and everything. Yeah, I think me and Michelle uh, and I have, have talked about this before where we're not ignoring this stuff completely. Often we're doing some of this stuff, but we don't know that it's science backed and that we're spacing stuff out. Everyone's suddenly beginning to space stuff out and everyone's suddenly beginning to reduce the size of content. And people are taking more notice of um, the content they're delivering and taking big text blocks and turning them into text and graphics and, and doing things like that. So yeah, there's stuff out there and it is being, there is science behind it. Yeah, you could say, I'm trying to connect up what people are doing to the science, but I think it's, I think it's the other way around. I don't want to discourage people with your challenge, which is fair enough, Nigel, but if we're saying we know this works and then we're retrofitting to why does it work, that's actually all right. You know, I've spent a large proportion of my L&D career 
not knowing why this stuff works, but knowing it works. And if that's your starting position as a practitioner, then great. You know, you, you've got a sense of, well, I, I tried this and I've experimented with it and I understand that this has better impact in my business. Now, if you want to then go back and dig into the academia of why does this work, then wonderful. I really encourage you to do that. What we mustn't encourage people to do is not try, not try to move away from the theories, the, the experience, the surveys that the CIPD and others do show that they don't work as well. And I'm afraid seven hours sitting in a classroom doesn't work as well as seven hours spaced across a period of months with reflection, with uh, conversations with other people, the social learning, with small videos, the micro learning. You know, the fact that these things are working, if we don't necessarily know all the science behind it, then, you know, is that a bad thing? Excellent case for the defence, Michelle, I think, there. I mean, I've looked up to find out what people say is wrong with workplace training, and they commonly say it's too generic, it's too basic and too boring. For some people, that might actually be the case, and I feel bad for them, and I really want to encourage the L&D practitioners in their organisations to think differently. Sometimes this is because we're measured on the wrong stuff. We're measured on just put people through the course, you know, get them on that e-learning so we can tick a compliance box. As professionals, we need to be better than that. And where learning theory can help us, it's, it's the balance between the science and the art of L&D. So yes, we can look at uh, motivational theory. Yes, we can look at how to do really good instructional design, human centered design so we've really got our learners at the heart of the offer that we're giving them when it comes to uh, to the L&D experience and we need to balance that against what the business priorities are it can't all just be fun and running around in fields and whatever it's got to have, it's got to be based in the business need but it doesn't need to be boring it shouldn't be boring because what we know from the science is actually if we engage and we have an emotional response then we'll remember it more so I think it's beholden on us as professionals to actually fight against the boring e-learning because we're told we need to put thousand people through some compliance training. And I also think, you know, this stuff makes you credible. You're in a profession, you're a practitioner, you owe it to yourself. You know, I went to the dentist the other day and um, I was thinking about this podcast as I was staring up at the ceiling. So after the um, after the treatment, I asked the dentist about the importance of keeping up with modern dentistry as part of their as part of their role. And we had a discussion around various things, but there's one thing that they said that really stood out for me, which was if I didn't keep on top of this stuff, I would get sacked. A light bulb went off when when they said that to me, and I think we should be taking it as seriously as that. Unfortunately, no one at the moment is going to, <laughs> to sack you, but it's uh, it's you no know, they, they're doing that as much for their job security as much as the, the quality of the service that they deliver. Great. Well, we're coming near to the end of our time. So just before we go from each of you, maybe a, a final thought about how you can break down the barriers and actually make some serious improvements to uh, the uh, learning that you're responsible for. For me, I think it's don't be scared of academic theory. I'm a very pragmatic practitioner in this, in that it feels ethereal and out there. But just try stuff out, you know, um, use people like Carl, use people like the learning science scientists. Fosway is another great space and CRPD's own research and fact sheets to to enable the science to become a little bit more accessible so you can mix it together with your art. Yeah, I think, look, there's since Ebbinghaus, there's been a whole series of movements, behaviourists, cognitive and constructivists, and uh, they've all added insight and they've all improved our understanding of learning. And I think you shouldn't ever 
if you do start looking into this, hook yourself on one of these movements because you may like it or it may uh, appeal to you. You should take pieces from each of them and learn from each of the movements and feed that into your own learning practice. Well, thank you very much indeed, both of you. Grateful thanks to Carl Chrysostomo and to Michelle Parry Slater for some great thoughts on how putting the best learning theory into practice uh, will definitely get you some results. Uh, still very current, our last podcast on embedding sustainability within organisations. It prompted Jan Maskell of Investors in the Environment and a Northwest consultant uh, to challenge all managers, including HR professionals, to take responsibility for the environment. Find out how by checking out that edition if you haven't already. Meanwhile, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an edition. But for now, from me, Nigel Cassidy, and everyone at the CIPD, till next time, it's goodbye. <laughs>